All right, well, good morning. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. We're continuing our studies in Romans, um, and we'll be covering about the first 11 verses in this passage. So it'll be Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Paul starts off by saying, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin any longer live in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, one of the movies, uh, before we kind of jump into the passage, one of the movies that we really enjoyed as a family growing up um, has been called, is called Princess Diaries. I don't know if, how many of you guys have seen that movie, um, but it's a really good one if you haven't. Um, and if, if you haven't seen it, uh, I'm sorry, spoiler alert, uh, we're going to kind of go through a lot of the details, but it's been out for two decades, so I don't think that you were planning on seeing it today anyways. So... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, the basis of the movie, though, is that, uh, or the, the plot of the movie is that uh, there is a 15-year-old named Mia, uh, and she is this socially awkward, uh, geeky teenager who doesn't have a whole lot of friends, but she is sweet, and she has, you know, she does value the friends she does, does have, uh, and, you know, life is more or less just cruising by in her life, and nothing uh, super important has been happening, and she kind of more or less goes under the radar for most of her life, uh, until her estranged grandmother comes and visits her in San Francisco and decides that she wants to pay a visit to her. Uh, but this grandma isn't just any regular grandma. This grandma is uh, the, the queen of a fictional country in Europe called Genovia. And um, during their visit, Mia finds out that she is the heir to the throne of Genovia. She goes from being a nobody to now discovering that she holds this new position in her life uh, as princess of Genovia. Uh, the only problem with it is that, uh, as you can probably see on the left side, uh, she looks nothing like a princess at first, um, and she, she acts nothing like a princess. Uh, you know, she doesn't wear her hair properly. Her, her, her dress isn't as a princess should look. She has very, very poor social skills. Uh, in fact, in the movie, at one point, the bodyguards and assistants of the queen are, are so embarrassed, they just burst out laughing at how awkward she is, how she can't walk properly, how she can't talk properly, how she can't wave properly. Um, and, uh, and so she goes through these different classes. She learns how to dress modestly, how to dress elegantly. She goes through and, and receives a total makeover. She learns etiquette. She learns how, how to uh, act in a formal setting. She learns how to talk, how to walk, how to act like a princess. And at the end of the movie, again, spoiler alert, I'm sorry, she grows in a way that conforms to her new position as princess of Genovia. And 
ultimately, despite her not really at first exemplifying any princess character traits, uh, at first, she does ultimately adapt to this new role that she's in. Why do I bring that up? Well, first of all, it is a good movie. But second of all, uh, today's passage, I think, has a lot to do with our position in Christ and our practice. And so I believe that this movie, The Princess Diaries, is a helpful way of uh, remembering that difference or making that distinction. You see, before we came to know the Lord, we placed our faith in him uh, and his work on the cross. When we did that, not only were we no longer dead to our trespasses and sin, not only were we made alive together with Christ, not only has he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, but also our position before God has changed. Before trusting him, our position is that we were sinners, that we're children of wrath, deserving to have the full weight of God's judgment poured out on our sins, but now we are in a position as children of God, and not just children, but Romans 8 says that we are now heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And so as heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, uh, naturally our position has changed. God now sees us positionally as perfect, as holy. He sees us as righteous. He sees us as accepted in the beloved. And the amazing thing is that a believer's position cannot change. It cannot be lost. It cannot be revoked. Our position before God does not change. But like in the Princess Diaries, Mia, she was told that she was a princess. She had this position, but she did not at all at first act like that position. Her practice, practically how she lived her daily life, it wasn't quite aligned with her position. And... Uh, the other thing to know, though, is that regardless of how much or how little she chose to act like a princess, it didn't change the fact that positionally she still indeed was a princess. Uh, and our position relating to us as believers does not change based upon our feelings or how much we act like our position or not. Our position stays the same. But you might have noticed that in practical application in our lives, when we live it daily, our daily life does not always look like our position does before God. We do not always act as we should or how he sees us. We don't always act holy or righteous. We don't live perfect lives. We still sin against God from time to time or really on a daily basis. And we fail to live according to how God views us positionally. And so I guess another way to kind of frame it, to, to explain it is that if our position is up here, all this way up here, and God views us as holy, righteous, set apart, redeemed, our position is down here. And it's something that we are trying to ever align our position or our practice to our position up here. Uh, that's kind of, the, in, in many ways, that's our, our goal is to conform more and more to be more Christ-like. And we'll never fully reach holiness or perfection in this lifetime, but that is our goal, to strive to be more like our position in Christ. Just like in the movie, Mia began conforming her practical lifestyle to her new position, we too as believers should be conforming our practices our decisions that we make every day should be more and more aligned with the position that we have in Christ. Uh, another concept I, I think is just important to point out before we jump into our passage is the idea that position and practice that we just talked about also goes in hand in hand with the idea of fellowship and relationship with God. Meaning that when you get saved, we are secured. Like I said, we cannot lose our salvation. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Your relationship is permanent with him. It's a permanent position, it's a permanent status. 
But our fellowship, on the other hand, that is just simply our current status in that relationship. For example, the, the way you can put it is, uh, you know, you've got kids, and uh, sometimes those kids decide to disobey their parents. And the kid can be out of fellowship with the parents because they've done something to harm them. But that relationship, you are still their son. You know, they're still your son. You, they are still your child. That relationship does not change regardless of how, uh, how poorly they're acting around you. Or the same thing with a husband and wife. Uh, you can have arguments, you know, among your marriage. And you may be out of fellowship and you need to address those issues. But you still have a relationship together as a married couple. And... Um, it's the same way with God. When we sin against him, we can be out of fellowship with him. But our relationship with him is secured. We may not always be practically living according to how God views us positionally. But again, we are always striving to be more and more like our position. And so with those ideas and those concepts in mind, we reached chapter 6 in Romans. And uh, just to recap this, uh, what, what Paul's been talking about in chapter 5, he spent a great deal of great deal of time talking about grace. And he talks about God's grace and kind of the, um, the springboard verse, really, for this chapter comes from Romans uh, 5.20, where he says, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Meaning that in the world, uh, sin is just running rampant. Sin is abounding, it's growing in the world. But at the same time that it's growing... God's grace towards sinners abounded, not just to an equal level, but even more so than their sin. <clears throat> and, and Paul is about to use this idea to introduce this new topic. And the topic he's introduced surrounds uh, the idea of our relationship now to sin. And he's going to talk about how our relationship to sin has changed since coming to know Christ as our Savior. Uh, we know what our relationship was like before coming to Christ, uh, we know that our relationship to sin is described in Ephesians 2. It says, And you were made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. That was our relationship before coming to Christ um, with our sin. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were enslaved to our sins. We had no ability to say no to our sins. We had no ability to get free from our sins. Uh, it had a hold on us that we didn't even realize it had on our lives. And when we came to a saving knowledge of Christ, it changed us completely. It changed our lives forever and for the better. But one of the things that we're going to look at today is how it changed our relationship to sin. And uh, he begins in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, where he says, What then shall we say? Or what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And so, uh, when considering this idea of the grace that God has shown sinners, it's likely that Paul would have had someone raise their hand and ask him a question at some point in time. And, uh, and it would be easy for someone to conclude that since our relationship with God is secured, uh, since that can never change, and since it says that we're sin abounded, grace abounded much more, then should we just sin a whole lot so that God can just give a whole lot of grace in return? You know, if someone were to ask the question today, maybe it would sound something like this. And I've heard this question asked myself, so it's out there. <laughs> uh, so you're saying that the more we sin, the more God's grace overflows. So why don't we just sin up a storm so God will be gracious to us? 
I mean, if all I have to do is to be saved is believe, then maybe, maybe, that means I can just live my life however I want to. After all, I mean, it does say that if you just believe in him, you'll be saved. Hey, that's a, that's a great deal. You know, uh, I got my ticket to heaven. Let me go back to living the way I used to live before because I know that my eternal security is secure. And that's very much a reality of what many people believe about um, Christianity, that you just, you just believe at the last second, or you believe at some point, and then continue on however you want to live. And Paul is going to use this, uh, use this idea now to address the question and explain to us how our relationship to sin has changed and how a believer cannot just continue on giving into a life of sin. And so in verse 2, Paul gives his answer with this question, you know, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says in verse 2, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? He's saying a believer cannot continue in sin because the Bible says we have died to sin. This is a, a positional truth that we learn, that when we trust in Christ, our relationship to sin has permanently changed. We have died to sin. And when we have died to sin, we cannot continue living in it any longer. It is not fitting for a believer to live any longer in something that they have, been, they have died to. You cannot go living in that sin. You haven't just been declared righteous before God. You've been made righteous. You haven't just been justified. You have been transformed. The old person has died and you are now a new creation. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And that's why Paul gives this emphatic, No, certainly not. You are not the same person you were before Christ. You have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And not only that, he's also giving you the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You've been given a new nature. When Christ died, he not only died as your substitute, but he also died as your representative, meaning that when he died, we died. And he settled this sin issue once and for all. And so that all that who are in Christ, positionally, God views them as having died to sin. That's our new position. Remember, our position's up here, and our practice is down here, ever conforming to our new position. The verse is not saying that a believer is sinless. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, we sin all the time. We continue at different points in our lives, not living according to how we should. But again, in light of the truth of our new position, in light of how God views us, we should be living daily to reflect that new truth of who we are positionally. And so Paul's answer again is no. You cannot continue living in sin the same way you did before you came to Christ. And so naturally the question that arises is, well, when did I die to sin? Uh, because uh, what do you mean by that? I've never even heard these concepts before. And so Paul explains what he means by giving simple truths. And the, the key word in the section is, is to know. And Paul, it, it really, there's a, there's a sense in which Paul is really wanting to educate his readers. He wants to just impose new knowledge upon them and explain these fundamental truths that these, these truths explain to you who you are now as a Christian. This is your, now your new relationship to sin as believers. Every believer needs to know these things because it affects how you live practically in your daily life. And so he explains, he explains himself. He says in verse 3 and 4, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, 
that just as Christ was raised from the dead from the, by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. And so he starts off by asking the question, do you not know? Do you not know? And this is really typical of Paul, wanting us to know more, wanting to reveal something about our salvation that we didn't know. He wants to teach us. And so he says, do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death? Did you know that? I can say, I, if Paul were to have asked me that question when I first got saved, I would have said, I didn't know that. I was, you know, I, I, I honestly had no idea that was the case. I thought when I came to Christ, I was simply forgiven of my sins, and I was. And, you know, I thought that's, that's as far as it went. But, you know, and, and at the time I was thankful, I was glad, you know, that I was forgiven. But as I grew, I started reading passages like this, and I found out that I was baptized into his death. And, and not only was I baptized, I was buried with him, and, and then I was raised with Christ. And all of these were new concepts to me as a believer. And so um, Paul is speaking to most people who wouldn't know these concepts, wouldn't understand these things. Um, and uh, in this verse, it talks about the word baptism, and I think we need to just take a second to look at that word because uh, we need to understand what Paul is talking to when he refers to baptism. And the idea behind baptism simply just means to, to immerse yourself or to be immersed into something. Um, and the Bible uses baptism in many different contexts, uh, from being baptized into water, uh, which would refer to being immersed into water, or it could refer to um, these as being baptized into sufferings, being immersed into sufferings. And so there's a lot of different uh, usages for the word baptism. But what does it mean, uh, being baptized, being immersed into Christ? It means that when a person is saved, there is a sense in which she or he is identified with Christ in his death and resurrection. Meaning that in the, in the eyes of God, the sinner that was once dead in sin is now dead to sin. And though Paul is not talking about the physical act of being baptized into water, there is a spiritual reality that is portrayed through water baptism. And uh, the act of water baptism is, is in, in many ways, a portrayal of a greater reality that took place inwardly in the heart of a believer. Water baptism is not something that saves a person. It's not something that uh, is required for salvation. It's simply an outward expression of something that's taken place within that person's heart. But when we immerse a person into water, that act portrays the fact that they have been immersed into Christ. The idea that they were joined to Christ in his death and his resurrection. Because when we died, or when Christ died, we died. And when Christ was buried, we were buried. And when he rose again, we rose again to newness of life. That old self is dead and gone and we've been crucified with Christ. That Christian is now a transformed person, a new creation. And so water baptism is just simply a visual illustration of baptism into Christ. And, and there's a sense in which when a person is baptized, when a believer is baptized, they attend a funeral of their old self. When a believer goes underwater, they're essentially saying that all that I was before coming to Christ all the things I used to be involved in, all the sinful things that I once thought were so good, all the sin that I used to have pleasure with, that I used to really enjoy and thought that was the best thing for me, all of those things I put to death at the, I put to death at the cross. I have died with Christ. All the past ways of living I no longer want to live for. 
I've decided I'm going to live for Christ. And I was buried with him, and when I was buried with him, you then come out of water into newness of life. Coming out of that water, showing that you've been raised from the dead into newness of life. Galatians 2, verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. And the point of all this is, in Paul saying this, is that there has been a drastic change in your life. Something, you know, something that changes the course of your life entirely happened when you became a believer. You cannot die and rise again to newness of life without it changing your life. If you're a believer, you have died with Christ, and you have been resurrected with Christ, and now you are to walk in that newness of life. Verse 5 says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. And the word, in the likeness of his death, just referring again to that portrayal of that union with Christ when you are baptized, um, and that, that took place, that death on that cross took place 2,000 years ago. But when he died on that cross, you died as well. And baptism is in the likeness of what took place back then. Not only do we go underwater in the likeness of his death, but we go underwater in the likeness of his resurrection, or we come out of the water in the likeness of his resurrection. Verse 6 says, Knowing that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Our old man is just a reference to all that we were as descendants of Adam. Our old, evil, wicked, unregenerate selves, our past ways of living, our sinful desires and passions, our old habits. When we came to Christ, in effect, we put off the old man and we put on a new man. Colossians 3.9 says, You have put off the old man with its deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Essentially, you're exchanging the dirty, filthy rags of your old self for spotless garments. And when Christ was crucified on the cross, your old man was crucified with him. And since your old man has been crucified, the body of sin has been rendered inoperative. It has been put out of commission. The body of sin is referring to not your physical bodies, but the indwelling person that is personified as this this ruling tyrant or this ruling master over us. That body of sin has been done away with. It's been rendered powerless that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And Paul, it's interesting, he likens our, our previous relationship to sin as slavery. He says, you were a slave to sin. You had no choice in the matter. You lived just however your master told you. But before you came to Christ, you, you couldn't say no to sin. You were unable to. It was your master. It, it had a stronghold over you. You were unable to change. There was nothing you could ever do to weaken your old man, much less put him to death. That is something that God had to do. And because of what Christ has done for us, the controlling power that sin once had over our lives, the tyranny of sin that once controlled us has been broken. It says in verse 7, For he who has died has been freed from sin. Our slavery to sin can only be broken by death. In uh, 1960, I don't know how many of you guys remember this movie, but there was a movie that's called Spartacus that came out 
by Kirk Douglas. He plays a slave named Spartacus, and um, in the movie, he, you know, he's a, a slave that escaped, and he leads this uh, slave rebellion in ancient Rome. But what I, what I uh, took away more from that movie than anything was um, there's a quote in the movie that says, um, death is the only freedom a slave knows. Death is the only freedom a slave knows. And that's true because the only freedom a slave ever has from the tyranny of its master is found in their death. And we have been set free from the sin because our old man was put to death. It was crucified with Christ on the cross. And now a new man, a free man, now lives. William MacDonald put it this way. Imagine there is a man who is sentenced to die in an electric chair for murdering a police officer. As soon as he dies, he is freed or justified from that sin. The penalty has been paid and the case is closed. And now that we have died with Christ on the cross of Calvary, not only has our penalty been paid, but the sin stranglehold on our lives has been broken. We are no longer helpless captives of sin. He continues on in verse 8. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We shall also live with him. And again, Paul has been presenting this idea, he's been driving home this point uh, that our relationship to sin since coming to know Christ has changed. We were again once dead in sin, and now since coming to Christ we are now dead to sin. And now we live with him. Meaning that we no longer live for the empty pleasures of sin, but we live for righteousness. We live to honor God, to do things that would praise him, to do things that would bring him glory, to do things that would please him. Sin no longer controls us. It's no longer our master. And so now we have the choice to live for him. And that's really the heart of the issue because many people uh, ask this question or say it to themselves or ask other people. And this is, you know, if I'm a believer and I'm truly dead to sin and I've died to Christ, then why am I still struggling with this sin? And why am I still having a hardship with this? And it really does come down to the fact that you do choose to do so. It's a choice for you to return to your old ways. It's a choice for you to continue on in sin because the chains of slavery have been loosed. The grip that uh, sin once had on your life is no more. And it's not to say that we're sinless. We are still sinners that have been redeemed and we live in a fallen world. But God calls us to imitate him, to live righteously, to live according to that new position that we have in Christ. And our practice should be ever conforming to that new position that we have with him. And when you say, well, you just don't know the temptations of sin that I deal with. You don't know how difficult it is for me to say no to this one. This sin really has me by the jugular, and I really can't say no to it. And uh, to those who feel that way, the Lord does give us, again, a comforting reminder and a promise that we can have victory even with these most besetting sins in our lives that we struggle with. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you except as such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So no matter how hard or how difficult that sin may seem in your life or how much of a stronghold you feel it has in your life, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to. You will be able to bear it because God will be your help. He will be your deliverer through that trial, through that temptation. Every time that sin comes knocking on your door, you can turn to him, and he will give you help. He will give you the strength to say no. 
And how, how can we have such confidence to say such things? How can we say these things? And the answer is because in verse 9, it says, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives now to God. Our confidence is based upon the fact that Christ rose from the grave, never to die again. He was victorious, ascending from that grave. He is no longer in that tomb. Death no longer has dominion over him, as it did during those three days. When Christ died, he died for sin once for all. He died for sin's claims, its wages, its demands, its penalty. His death on the cross was enough to pay our debt in full. And on the cross of Calvary, he finished the work that he came to do. It was a, a one-and-done a one type of situation. His death was sufficient for our sins. And now Christ is arisen and alive, and he lives to God. And we, too, have been given a new life. We are dead to sin, free from the chains of sin, given eternal life, not in order that we can just continue going on living how we please, but rather that we live to please God, to bring him glory, to serve him, to praise him. And with all that in mind, Paul concludes this section by giving us just a practical application for our lives in verse 11. He says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are not just someone who has been declared righteous. You are a new creation. You have been totally transformed. You now, new, you now live a new life. Christ, again, has broken that power of sin in your life, broken that bondage, freed you from your slavery, and now he commands you to consider or to reckon yourself dead to sin and now live a life of righteousness. That old life is dead and gone. Positionally, you have died to sin. Now act and live in light of these truths. And you still think to yourself, well, my practice, my daily living is so far removed from how God sees me positionally. I, I haven't arrived yet. And the truth of the matter is that none of us have. We are still on a daily basis battling our flesh. None of us have achieved a perfect life, and none of us will achieve a perfect life. I, I still see in my life sin, and I, and I hate it. I see sin in that I, I wish that, you know, I regret, you know, the next day I, like, oh, I shouldn't have said that, or I shouldn't have done that. But that's all evidence of that new nature. When you sin, you feel the guilt and the weight of what you've done because it goes against the grain of who you now are. Before, you used to go by and do these things, and you were unfazed by it all. But now, instead, you hate it. You have righteous longings to follow him. John Newton, the writer of many hymns, including Amazing Grace, realized his shortcomings, realized how far his practice was from his position in Christ. And uh, he's quoted as saying, I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I, I abhor what is evil, and I would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon I shall put off mortality, and with mortality all sin and imperfection. And yet, though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say by the grace of God I am not what I once was. And that's, that's what a converted sinner looks like. They look back on who they once were. And they realize that they are not that same person. They are a changed man. They are a different person. May we live lives that live for righteousness, ever conforming our 
practical lives, our practice, to be more in line with how God views us positionally. And may we live lives that would bring him glory and praise, realizing that we, were not, we are not who we once were. Let's just pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we're just so thankful for the fact that we are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer bound to um, our old ways. Lord, you have set us free, Lord. We are no longer now to live for ourselves, but to live for you, Lord. And I pray that we would just practically live our lives for you, for righteousness, for, for your glory, for your honor, for your praise. I pray that, Lord, we would just reflect our position more and more every day. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. I saw it in closing, we could stand and sing, Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone. Uh, there'll be uh, lyrics on the screen, and we'll just sing that together.